0: We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1 together. We're actually going to spend uh, next to no time in Ephesians 1 today. But we're, we're going to look at the entire book of Ephesians together. That's our new sermon series that we're beginning here today. But today I kind of have to introduce the characters I I, I get the opportunity, I'd say, to take take our time together today and look at who it is that's writing this letter and who it is that he's writing this letter to. And so we're going to look at Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 2 together, which says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray as we transition to looking at God's word together. Father, thank you for this book, the book of Ephesians, written by your Holy Spirit through this man named Paul to people who in many ways were just like us, who wanted to know you and serve you, who wanted to build your kingdom, who wanted to reach the people around them, who wanted to impact their city with the gospel. Today, as we have an opportunity to learn from your word, I pray that you'd open our minds and our hearts to receive what you have for us here today. Give us clarity and give us, by the power of your Holy Spirit, a desire to order our lives around what your word teaches us is true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've got two characters in our cast of characters. We have Paul, who introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. And then we have his audience, to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Ephesus was a city. And he's writing to the church, largely at, at that time during the first century, that each city would have one church that, that when Paul would write his letters, he would address that church specifically. Now today, we have, we have multiple churches in nearly every city, at least here in America. That wasn't the case then. There was largely just one church, one group of believers in Ephesus, and Paul is writing this letter to him. You understand the Bible is actually one book made up of 66 books. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is Jesus. The Old Testament ends before Jesus comes, and the New Testament begins when Jesus comes. So we're in the New Testament. We're looking at one of the the 27 books of the New Testament, this book called Ephesians, which is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. Now there's some things that I think are very helpful as we look at this book together and the content of this book. There's some things that will be very helpful for us to know about both Paul and the church in Ephesus. And so that's what we want to do today. So if you have a a handout in front of you, there's a few things that I want you to fill in the blanks on as we go through this together today. The first is this. Before Before he was Paul the apostle, he was Saul the persecutor. Before he was Paul the apostle, he was Saul the persecutor. This is really a fantastic story. And if, you, if you're not familiar with the story, I would strongly, even if you are familiar, regardless of your familiarity with this story, I would strongly encourage you this week to look at the book of Acts. You can start somewhere, if you pick up around the end of Acts chapter 7, and then just read the next few chapters and look at the transformation of the life of Paul. It's an incredible, incredible story. I want to hit some of the highlights together. Because before he was Paul the apostle he was Saul the persecutor what I mean by that is that when we pick up in the end of Acts chapter 7 let me set the stage for this a little bit so after Jesus uh, after Jesus's death and resurrection he spent a few more days on the earth with his disciples and teaching them and instructing them on what to do next and then after about 40 days after his resurrection, he ascended and left them, but he promised to send to them the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this recently in some of our sermons. And so after Jesus goes away from the earth, he sends his Holy Spirit to be his presence among his people. He sends his Holy Spirit to fill his disciples and to, to fill the church with his power, and to give them the power to be witnesses he says is one of the purposes for the holy spirit coming that they would have power to be witnesses now in in the course of becoming witnesses to the people around them these early christians at the very beginning of the church start proclaiming the gospel in the city of jerusalem now the city of jerusalem was full of jews and many of those early christians were jews almost all of them actually were jews who had believed that jesus was the promised messiah the Messiah that God had promised all throughout the Old Testament, the Savior, the one who would come and rescue them, the one who would come and lead them. So some of these Jewish men and women had determined and been convinced by the Holy Spirit that that was speaking of Jesus. And they began to proclaim that message to the people there in Jerusalem. But a lot of the Jews didn't like that. In fact, they became very angry and they were, they were getting upset, they, they, threatened, uh, they threatened these Christians with violence. Sometimes they would throw them in jail, sometimes they would arrest them and, and, and do all kinds of things to them to get them to stop declaring this message. Well, in Acts chapter 7, we see one of these early Christians presenting the gospel message to the Jews, and they get so angry at what he's doing, they decide they're going to kill him. And the way they're going to kill him is they're going to stone them. Stone him. It says in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, they dragged him out of the city, speaking of Stephen, and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now we're going to see as we go along here why why Saul was... In, this is the first we hear of this guy, Saul. But we're going to see as we go why he may have been in this position and why they may have came to him in, in, in some sort of... Um, Some sort of act of showing him respect and seeking his approval over what they were about to do. They lay their garments at his feet. And it says in in chapter 8, verse 1, Saul agreed with putting him to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Imagine this scene. Here's the early church. They're so excited about what's happening. I mean, the the wind is in their sails. They've got this message about what Jesus has done. And they've got this opportunity to proclaim it to all these Jews in Jerusalem. And many of these Jews... In fact, on one day, on one occasion, there were 3,000 Jews that believed in Jesus. This was an exciting church plant. Things are going really well. They're very excited about what's happening. And then things start to take a turn. As the Jews get sick of what they're seeing uh, happen, as people basically are turning away from their teaching to embrace the teaching of these Christians, these people who are, they're they're not considered Christians at that time, they're just Jews who believe that Jesus was the Messiah. As people turn to them, they become upset. And now they've got their first martyr. Stephen is the first Christian to give his life for proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. Imagine, if the people of Lower Borough got so upset with us that they came in here, dragged somebody that we know and love. Let's use Greg as an example. Dragged him out of here and stoned him to death. Imagine the heartbreak. It says, Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. This was not an easy day. This was not a, a good time in this early church's history they're heartbroken, they're mourning deeply, more than that, and they now fear for their own lives. And they began to disperse, they were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Many of them were in Jerusalem for the feast, and so they they went back to where they came from. Some of them probably just left because they knew it wasn't safe to be in Jerusalem. And it says, Saul was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Imagine somebody having so much power that they could come into your home, take your husband or your wife, kicking and screaming, and against your will, take them into prison for preaching the gospel or for even just believing the gospel. Kim and I rewatched Hotel Rwanda. Um, I think it would be from like early 2000s, 2000, probably 2004, 2005. And it's a story about the genocide in Rwanda where one people group decided that they were going to eliminate, totally eliminate another people group. And they did that very thing. And it was, so as I'm reading this, I have that picture in my mind. There, there are scenes in the movie where they're literally dragging people from their homes, kicking and screaming to murder them on the streets. This is the kind of guy Saul was. Saul is dragging men and women from their homes and putting them in prison for believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before he was Paul the apostle, he was Saul the persecutor. Don't miss that as we go into the book of Ephesians. As we listen to what Paul has to say to that church in Ephesus, let's not forget where he came from. He was the most violent and aggressive persecutor of the early church that we know of. But the thing that changed Paul, and this is the next thing on your handout, the thing that changed Paul was that he met Jesus. The thing that changed Paul was that he met Jesus. I get so excited about this story. I get, as I was reading this this week and preparing, I just, I, I just wanted to tell everybody how excited I was to preach this message because the thing that changed him was that he met Jesus. That was it. That was the only thing that changed between Paul the, Saul the persecutor and Paul the apostle was that he met Jesus Christ. And it completely changed his life. The Bible tells us the story. It says in Acts chapter 9... Starting in verse 1, now Saul was still breathing. By the way, Saul and Paul, the reason there's two names, it was fairly common at the time. Saul was his Jewish name and Paul was his Latin name. And, I, and the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why he started going by Paul instead of Saul, but there's a clear transition in the book of Acts where they stop calling him Saul and start calling him Paul. And we can spiritualize it and, and talk about his conversion and all that, but there's really no evidence of that in Scripture. The Bible just simply tells us that as as, as time would uh, go by, he would begin going by Paul. And then throughout, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, they only refer to him as Paul. I think probably the most logical reason is, is he, be, he became a missionary to the Gentiles. And so he started going by his non-Jewish name. Because the Jewish people at the time were under a foreign government. There was a clash of cultures. And so it wasn't uncommon for them to have a Jewish name and a Latin name. And so I think Paul just simply started going by his Latin name because he, was among, he wasn't among the Jewish people so much anymore. So that's just my take on why that transition happens. But it says in chapter 9, verse 1, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in, in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Now let me pause. In verse 2, there's a couple of things we need to understand. So Paul has, he's, he's very clearly a leader among the Jewish people. And we're going to see more about that in some of the verses we're going to look at. But he's very clearly a leader, and he seems to be the one leading the persecution against these Jews who have turned from their teaching to believe in Jesus. And so he gets permission from the people above him who had the authority, the high priest. He requests letters. He's going to now take these to the synagogues in Damascus, which is a decent decent hike outside of Jerusalem. It's not even in uh, modern-day Israel. Damascus is up in Syria, so it's north of Jerusalem. And he's taking these letters that give him permission to go to the Jewish churches, the synagogues, there in that other city, and inquire that if there's anybody in that town who has begun to believe in Jesus, that he will take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem so that they can stand trial for believing in Jesus. Now he's on his way to do that. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. Saul, the persecutor, has now met Jesus, and he's met Jesus in a dramatic way. A flash of light knocks him to the ground. He hears a voice from heaven. Though there's no one standing there talking to him, he hears a voice. Could you imagine a voice coming from heaven speaking directly to you and then when he opens his eyes he is unable to see anything this radically changes paul it shakes him up it shakes him up in ways that he's probably not sure if he's going to recover from he's not eating he's not drinking he can't see He's wondering what is next. But he has has this from the Lord. I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting, but get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So he waits. And for three days he waits. He has met Jesus. When you meet Jesus, it changes everything. When you truly meet Jesus... When you have an encounter with him, and I'm not talking about flashing lights and and voices from heaven because I think few, if any of us, would ever have that type of experience. That is not the norm and it should not be expected of us to be the norm. This is extraordinary circumstances. He has met Jesus in a dramatic way and it changed his life forever. We're going to read in his own words what that transition looked like, but we're to fill in the gaps here just so you understand the story. From that time on, he spends a little bit of time in Damascus with some other Christian believers at the time. The people that he went to arrest become his brothers and sisters in Christ, and become his friends and the ones who begin to to help him through this transition. In fact, initially they were afraid to come to him. God sends this guy named Ananias to actually be the one to go and speak to Paul. Paul's still blind at the time, and God speaks to Ananias and says, go and pray for him that he might be given his sight back. And Ananias' first reaction is like, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> no, Saul, the one who came here from Jerusalem to arrest me and others just like me and take us as prisoner, you want me to go talk to him? That's okay, Lord. And the Lord convinces him. And he goes and he prays for Saul, and Saul receives his sight. And Saul quickly begins to become a leader among the Christian community there. He begins to debate with the Jews in that city about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how radically he is transformed by meeting Jesus. Again, the only thing that has happened is he met Jesus, that's the only thing that has happened in his life. His mom didn't die during this time, he didn't get sick, there was, there was, you know, he didn't lose his job, he just met Jesus, and it changed everything. He goes in the city to arrest Christians, and now he's their friend, and he's standing alongside of them, and he's arguing with the Jews. He was supposed to go there and give the Jews the letters, like, hey, I got letters, point out the Christians, I'm going to take them back to Jerusalem so that they can go to prison. Now he's arguing with those same Jews, saying, you've got to believe in Jesus, He's the Messiah. He's the one. He did die for our sins. He did rise from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. Paul is radically transformed by meeting Jesus. So let's look at his own words. This is how he talks about his transition from who he was, from Saul the persecutor to Paul the apostle. Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 14. Go ahead and turn to Philippians 3. He says in verse 2, Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Guess who he's talking about? The religious Jews. He's talking about the people who were just like he was. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about religious people. He says, for we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. This is the part I want you to hear. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now Paul's going to go into his religious pedigree. He's going to tell us how astute of a religious Jew he was. He says in verse 5, circumcised on the earth day, on, on the eighth day, meaning from birth he was raised as a Jew. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. In other words, Paul is saying, I was as religious as you can possibly be. I was doing as, it as good, if not better, as anyone else. I came from the right lineage. I did all the right things regarding the law. I became a Pharisee. Now Pharisees were were one of the Jewish groups of that time who were committed to strict adherence not only to Old Testament law but to the oral teaching that came from the earlier Jews as well. And so they would take what the Old Testament laid down as law and they would take it ten steps further. And they would say they would have ridiculous laws like, well, the, the Bible says we can't work on the Sabbath. And so they would come up with things like, well, then don't spit on the ground, because when you spit on the ground, it turns the dirt over, and turning the dirt over is work. And they would say, well, if we can't can't work on the Sabbath, then let's not even do things like spit on the ground. They would come up with these ridiculous laws so that they did not ever come close to breaking any of the Old Testament laws. That's religious zeal. And there's, there's admirable things about some of that. A lot of this came about during that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think, you know, one of the motivating factors was the Jews were just sick of getting their butts kicked because throughout the Old Testament, you're hard-pressed to find too many Jews who actually obeyed what God told them to do. And so he's constantly punishing them to get their attention back on him. He's, he's allowing other nations to rule over them. And finally, they're like, that's it. we got to do this right. And so they established these very strict religious rules. That was Paul. He says, I bought into that. Regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, I persecuted Christians. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, I was blameless. I did everything. He was as religious as you can possibly get. He says, if you want to boast about being a good religious person, listen to my boasting. And the next thing you see on your handout is the most important thing that we get here today. That Paul was bound by religion until relationships set him free. He was bound by it. He was bound by religion. He, 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 he ate, slept, and breathed. Being a religious person. He wanted to get it all right. He was as zealous for that as you could possibly be. And he was bound by it until relationships set him free. He says in verse 7, the very next verse. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be lost because of Christ. All of that religious pedigree, the fact that I was born a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Circumcised on the eighth day, raised in a religious home, went on to be a religious leader. I became a Pharisee. Remember, when we meet Saul in Acts chapter 7, it says he's a young man, but he's a young man who's respected by his fellow Jews, so much so that they seek his approval in killing Stephen. He's a leader. As a young man, he's a leader among the Jews regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be loss because of Christ. He met Jesus. He met Jesus, and it changed everything. He says in verse 8, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing. Christ Jesus, my Lord. The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Knowing Jesus has value that surpasses anything else you could accomplish in life. Knowing Jesus has value that surpasses anything else that you could ever have in your life. Knowing Jesus has value that surpasses everything else in the universe. And Paul knew him. He met Jesus. Everything that was gained to me I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law. All of that religious stuff I did, I don't depend on that anymore. That's not my justification before God. Not, not having a re- righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. My goal, listen to verse 10, my goal is to know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings Being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Paul's saying, I want to know Jesus more so badly that that I hope that even suffering will bring me closer to him. I will die for him. Being conformed to his death, I give my life that I might know him. That's why he's able to say, to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is Saul the persecutor, now the Apostle Paul. I consider them as dung. Everything else in life pales in comparison to knowing Christ. That's the next thing on your hand. Everything else in life pales in comparison to knowing Christ. When Paul uses the word dung, it means what you think it means. That's how he views everything else that he ever had. When I compare it to Jesus, it's that, it's that bad. It adds up to nothing. All of that notoriety, all, all of the respect of his fellow Jews, everything that he had accomplished by a young age, dung. Worthless offensive to be avoided because there's something of far greater value and that's knowing Jesus. There's something of far greater value than everything else he had attained and accomplished and achieved and it was knowing Jesus. As I was studying this passage, I came across uh, this, this, this illustration of elephant dung beetles. If... And they're very fascinating creatures for one reason. Their entire lives, all they do is seek out poo. <laughs> and when they find it, they treat it like it's the greatest thing that has ever been found. Elephant dung beetles, what they do is they, God has given them special abilities to locate piles of dung. And when they find it, they immediately go to it and they make themselves a big ball of it, several times larger than their own bodies. And then they, they spend all of their energy and all of their time rolling that ball of dung away from the pile, off into their own place, often finding, the, the males do this, and often they'll find a woman that will come with them. Women are strange, females are strange creatures. They'll follow a, a guy that has next to nothing. And, and it's no different in, in the insect world, apparently. They'll, they'll roll this ball of dung off and they'll pick up a partner and they'll take that and they'll treat that as their prized possession. And they'll use it as their life source. They'll live off of it. They'll have babies on it. They'll do all kinds of strange things. But that is their world. They expend every bit of energy and life that they have to find a ball of dung. Paul says, that's what I was doing before I met Jesus. Everything I had was dung. Everything I had attained, everything I had accomplished, everything that I thought of as valuable, I look back now and I see it for what it truly was, completely worthless. Worthless. But now I have Christ. And he is of surpassing value. Everything else in life pales in comparison to knowing Christ. He goes on to say in verse 12, we're still in Philippians 3. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect. But I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. It so transformed Paul that now his purpose in life... Is to count everything else as dung, to count everything else as worthless, and to set himself wholly on pursuing Jesus Christ. That's what a relationship with Jesus does to you. Religion tries to change you from the outside in, but relationship changes you from the inside out. Let me say that again so you can fill in the blanks. Religion tries to change you from the outside in, but relationship changes you from the inside out. When Jesus got a hold of Paul, Paul said, I want more of Jesus. He was changed on the inside, and he began to be changed on the outside as a result. He now ordered his life around knowing Jesus more. That's all he wanted to do. Whatever that looked like. If it meant he had to suffer for Jesus so that he would know Him more, okay. If it meant he had to travel and preach the gospel so that he could know Jesus more, okay. If it meant he had to be in poverty, if he had to give up many of the things that he valued previously, okay. Because he found something of surpassing value. He found something that was worth so much more than everything he had before. That's Paul. I wanted you to meet him. I wanted you to know... Who wrote this letter, Ephesians? The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. And that's his background. That's his history. And that's his perspective on life. And so when we look at Ephesians, you're, you're listening to a letter written by a guy who is sold out for Jesus. A guy who's willing to do anything to serve Jesus. A guy who sees Jesus as the most valuable thing in all of existence. A guy who had a lot going for him from an earthly perspective. A guy that had a lot of success and gave it all up because he knew it was no longer worth anything now that he met Jesus. And he writes to the church in Ephesus. And so we need to know a little bit about the church of Ephesus. I won't spend as much time on them, but there's some really great stuff in the book of Acts that gives us some great background information on the church of Ephesus. We're going to look at Acts chapter 19, and then, again, just like I did with Paul, I encourage you to read those several chapters where we kind of get introduced to Paul. I think you'll really enjoy reading Acts, if you pick up at the very end of 7, and then just read the next couple chapters. Same thing, if you want to learn about the church at Ephesus, read starting in in Acts chapter 19, and then read the next couple chapters, and then you'll see when the story transitions away from Ephesus. It says in Acts 19, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way, that was what they called this belief in Jesus as the Messiah, the way, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples and conducted discussions Every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, this went on for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Okay, so what happened as Paul after Paul's conversion and as he's he's growing as a leader in the Christian church, he starts going on what, what we often refer to as his missionary journeys. All, he would, all that really means is he would travel all around the, the, the Roman Empire, and he would preach the gospel. He would go into cities, and if they had Jewish synagogues, if there was a Jewish population there, and many of them had that, he would go into the synagogue. That was where the Jews gathered. That was their church building. And he would begin to speak boldly the gospel of Jesus. And oftentimes this would get him death threats. This, this sometimes got him stoned or beaten. And he would often have to flee the city after preaching the gospel there. But he has a little bit of a long-term stay in Ephesus. When he gets to Ephesus and he enters the synagogue and he speaks boldly, he says over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. He's speaking passionately about Jesus. And then some of them become very hardened and upset with what he's doing. So he withdraws from the synagogue, but he takes those who are believing in Jesus, and they go to a, a lecture hall uh, in a place called Tyrannus. Okay? So it's, that's the name of the school. And it says, for two years they met together, and he taught them the word of the Lord. And so he spends two years establishing this church in Ephesus. It's a church plant. That's what he did everywhere he went. He planted churches. He'd preach the gospel, gather the people that believed, he would appoint elders to lead them, and then he would move on. And in the course of moving on and going to other cities and preaching the gospel and doing the same thing, there were on a few occasions where he found himself writing letters back to those churches that he had been a part of establishing, or sometimes other churches, even if he wasn't a part of establishing them, and those form many of the books of the New Testament, Ephesians being one of them. And so after two years there together, and he he moves on, he has a very deep connection to these people, so he wants to write them this letter. But we need to know a little bit more about the Ephesian church, because here's the next thing on your handout. The Ephesian church started as a church plant in a city with no gospel witness. They had no gospel witness there, just like all the other cities, because the gospel was brand new. And so they started as a church plant in a city with no gospel witness, but grew to make a huge kingdom impact. And change many lives for eternity. We see this play out in the book of Acts. That's where we get... All of this information, basically, that we have. The book of Ephesians isn't going to tell us a whole lot about the church there at Ephesus. We can insinuate certain things by the, the topics that he's talking to them about. But all of the historical data that we have about this church is in the book of Acts, and, chap- and mo- mainly in Acts 19, where it tells some very cool stories about what happens after the gospel begins to grow in the, book of Ephesus, or in the, in the city of Ephesus. In Acts 19, verse 18, it says, And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. While many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. So as the church is growing in Ephesus, people begin to... They're convicted about how they've been living their lives. And there is in the city, because this was a pagan city, and they had uh, a lot of things that we would consider today as very strange practices, some of them quite evil. They worshipped false gods. And in the worship of their false gods, they often did a lot of very immoral things and counted that as worship. But one of the things that was fairly prevalent in the city is you had these folks who practiced magic. And I don't know what that looked like. I don't think they were like um, who's that guy that got real famous in Vegas that did all the magic tricks and you know like saw people in half. I don't think it was that kind of magic. It was like you know more like putting curses on people and you know doing things to to gain what you wanted to gain in life. And so there was that was a fairly prevalent thing. And so when the gospel is being preached and hearts are being changed and people who just, like, who just like Paul met Jesus are now meeting Jesus themselves, they're convicted and they want to change their lives. And so they bring together their books, their magic books, and burn them in front of everyone. And the value was 50,000 pieces of silver, which in today's dollars would have a value of several million dollars. So they brought great wealth in response to the gospel, they brought books together that are valued at 50,000 pieces of silver, the equivalent of several million dollars, and burned them as a sign of their repentance. They're doing exactly what Paul did. They meet Jesus, and they now see that everything else that they had that they once considered valuable is worthless. I don't need it anymore. I don't want it anymore. I met Jesus. I have him. He is far more valuable than this collection of books that we have. He is of surpassing value. This is an incredible move of God in the city of Ephesus. As people begin to forsake old ways to pursue Jesus Christ. And I just want to pause here before I tell you the next thing I want to tell you about the church in Ephesus. I don't want to get carried away with this. I don't, want to, I, I, don't, I don't want to advise anybody to do anything too weird or anything. But you know what? When you meet Jesus, there ought to be some things you're willing to burn. There ought to be some things that you're ready to get rid of. Sometimes it's relationships. Sometimes it's actually physical objects. I remember when I came to Christ. I gathered up some stuff in my room, I had some pornography, I had some drugs, I had some tobacco products, and I took all of that and I just went down the street to a garbage can and I threw it in the trash because I didn't want it anymore and I didn't need it. And when you come to Jesus, if you've truly met Jesus and he's transformed your life and you now see him as surpassing value, there ought to be some stuff that you've gotten rid of. And whether it's physical or mental stuff or relationships or whatever it is, there ought to to be an evidence of something that as you were transformed by Jesus, you got rid of some things, some things changed in your life. If that hasn't happened to you yet, I just want to encourage you, maybe there's some things you need to do this week. Some things you're going to cut off from your life and say, you know what, I don't want that to be a part of my life anymore because I've met Jesus and he's a far greater value. Okay, so this is what's happening in the city of Ephesus. People are coming to know the Lord and they're convinced of his value and so they're doing radical things. But this creates a really big problem. This creates a big problem because there's so many people coming to Jesus in this city and meeting him and seeing him as more valuable than these other things, that it's actually changing the economy. Listen to what happens next. About that time there was a major disturbance about the way, for a person named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made shrines of Artemis, provided provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, Men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. So in Ephesus, there's this temple to this false god, and that's why their city existed for the most part. And this was what the people of, the, of that city did. They worshipped this false god. There's so many people turning to Jesus that the guys who are making money off of creating these objects out of silver that are used in worship, they're saying, look, we're going to lose our business. We're going to lose our prosperity. We've got to stop this if for no other reason because people aren't going to buy our silver idols anymore. And it leads to a great riot. A riot so intense that the other disciples won't even let Paul enter into where everybody has gathered and begun rioting for fear that he might lose his life. And eventually a man of wisdom calms them down and says, hey look, we're part of the Roman Empire and they don't like rioting. If you guys don't chill out, they're going to come in here and they're going to put an end to this in a way that we don't want them to. And so they convince the rioting to stop. But I want, the point in all of this is I want you to see the incredible change that is taking place in the city of Ephesus simply because people are meeting Jesus. What started as a small church plant in a city with no gospel witness grew to make a huge kingdom impact and changed many lives for eternity. And so I titled this sermon, The Man in the City Changed by Knowing Jesus. That's what we're going to look at as we study the book of Ephesians. This communication between the man and the city that were changed by knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus changed Paul, and knowing Jesus changed the city of Ephesus. And so the question I want you to ask yourself, and this is the last thing you'll see on the handout, is simply this. Has knowing Jesus changed my life? That's the question I want you to ask. I say all of that to set us up for what we're going to read in Ephesians. But at the end of the day, I want this to be very practical. I want you to ask yourself that question. Has knowing Jesus changed my life? Have I met him in such a way that I see him as more valuable than anything else? Have I met him in such a way that I was willing to give up some things that I used to see as valuable? That I was willing to change the way I did some things? Has he made that kind of impact on your life? If he hasn't, I want to encourage you to ask him to make that change in your life today. And if he hasn't done that already, it might, be because you're not, it might be because you haven't come into a saving relationship with Jesus. And you might just be realizing that for the first time. Maybe you thought you were okay because you went to church, but you, like Paul, might just have been bound by religion. And what you really need is relationship to set you free. What you really need is Jesus to come into your life. And that you need to know him on a personal level. And if he does that, it will change you it will change you. I remember how it changed me. And I I can tell you story after story of people that I have seen changed by knowing Jesus. And I want that to be your story. That you are changed by knowing Him. That He changes your life. And if you are ready to do that today, in just a few minutes, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray along with me as we ask Jesus to come and change our lives. But before we get to that, I want to speak to us as a church. How has us knowing Jesus changed the city? Or, because we're fairly young, how will us knowing Jesus change this city in the future? Are we going to be content to just gather together in a room like this or wherever God has us? By the way, a quick update on the building. Um, Not a whole lot has changed, um, but we're having some very encouraging conversations Uh, with this Christian Missionary Alliance about the empty church building over um, by Hillcrest Country Club. And so continue to pray for that. Um, We're hoping that that's going to, that door's going to open and we're going to be able to meet and worship there. But are we going to be content just to gather in a building together for a couple of hours on Sunday morning? Or do we want to see the city changed? Do we want to see people meet Jesus? Do we really care about the 150,000 people within 20 minutes of where we're at right now, most of whom who do not know Jesus? And if so, what are we doing about it? Are we praying for this city? Are we doing things to demonstrate God's plan of redemption in this city? That is why we exist. We must be driven by the gospel to go into our community. We must be driven by the gospel to go into the relationships that we already have with the good news of Jesus. We must be driven by the gospel to go out of our comfort zone and meet complete strangers with the good news of Jesus in the hope that one day Jesus will change this city. So much so that maybe even some people get upset. Not that that would be our goal, but that the institutions that are profiting off of people not having a relationship with Jesus, but perhaps are profiting off of binding people in religion, that there will be so many people being set free that they'll start to say, hey, we got a problem here. Too many people meeting Jesus. They're not interested in religion anymore. They want to know Jesus. They're not interested in the things that we've bound them up with. They know Jesus now. And that's a problem. May God change this city. How will God impact this city through us, Redemption Church? How will God impact this city through his church as a whole? Let's pray and seek God that he would change many lives right here in our city. And then one day, we'll be hanging out with those Ephesian believers who's trading stories. They're like, yeah, you, you got I know you read about it, but we're going to tell you more. I mean, these guys were bringing all these magic books, and listen, those things were worth millions of dollars, and they were just willing to burn them because they met Jesus. And we're going to be like, well, let us tell you what happened in Lower Burl, because Jesus is moving, and when people meet Jesus, he changes them. And when enough people are changed by Jesus, it changes the city, and that's our goal, that the kingdom of God will grow as people meet Jesus and are changed by him. But it starts with you. How has knowing Jesus changed your life? As the worship team comes up and gets ready to lead us in worship, I just want to end with giving you the opportunity, if Jesus hasn't changed your life, if you haven't received Jesus as your Savior, and He hasn't come in and brought about a change in who you are and whose you are and how you live your life, I want to invite you to do that today. And we do that by believing, first of all, in what He did on our behalf. the Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ went to the cross, died for our sins, paying the penalty, paying the debt that we owe to God because of the sins we've committed. Jesus died for us, and that he was resurrected from the dead on the third day, conquering sin and death, paying the price for your sins, offering eternal life and salvation to everybody who believes in him and calls on his name. And if you want to do that today, I want to encourage you to do that right now as we pray. So as every eye is closed, I want to lead you in a prayer. And if you want to receive Jesus today, pray along with me that He would come into your life and change you. Jesus, I believe that I'm a sinner. And I believe that you died for that very reason. Today, I want to put my trust in you. I want to ask you to forgive me of my sins. To grant me eternal life. To free me from the religion that might have bound me. And set me free by a relationship with you. I thank you for this free gift. I receive it today. In Jesus' name. And now church, I want you to join me in praying for this city. Father, change this city. I pray that You would rescue so many people from the dominion of darkness that it would change the economy of this city. I pray that You would rescue so many people from hell and the penalty of their own sins that when You come into Lower Borough, You would know something has changed. I pray that we would see people come to you and that new churches would be planted and that missionaries would go out from this city into the world around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Multiply us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.